Good evening, everyone. Hope you and family are keeping well and safe. So uh, most of us are working from home. So here we are at Spectrum being, bringing um, our events online. So welcome to Spectrum's first webinar. Some of you may have visited Spectrum. We offer curated workspaces designed for community experience and also connections to expand your business. So um, I'm Sophia. Happy to gather the community together through learning at Spectrum events like today's panel session. So today's panel session will discuss on the rise of digital currencies, tech companies versus central banks. Let me introduce you to the experts on the panel. So first, the moderator, we have Gracelyn Ho. Gracelyn is a banking and financial industry veteran with decades of experience in senior leadership roles regionally and globally at ABN AMRO, Morgan Stanley, and UBS. So across capital markets, private wealth management, and strategy. She is currently a senior advisor with Singapore Consultancy, an investor in fintech and startups, and sits on the board of a venture philanthropy. And Gracelyn, um, you want to say hi? Hello. Okay, so next I have Hagen, Hagen Rook. He's a financial regulatory counsel in the Singapore office of Reed Smith. He is dual qualified to practice in Singapore and English laws. He leads a practice focused on fintech and payment services. His wealth of experience in matters relating to digital assets include cryptocurrencies, will provide insightful perspectives at today's session. Next, um, Hagen, do you want to wave? <laughs> Say hi. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for having me today. Thanks. So next we have Joe Tusin. He is the CEO of Change. He has over 30 years of tech industry experience, including fintech across the US and Asia Pacific. He is passionate in financial inclusion for the unbanked, which area he will touch on later, and also provide his perspectives on the use and distribution of CBDCs aside from the role of payment services. Last but never the least, I have John Ho. Head of Legal, Financial Markets for Standard Chartered Bank. He is qualified as an advocate and solicitor in Singapore. He chairs the FIA FinTech and co-chairs ISDA's Southeast Asia Legal and Regulatory Committee. So uh, John will share his views on the role of banks, especially a large bank like Standard Chartered Bank in the use and distribution of CBDCs. So participants, do post your questions on the Q&A window here. So without further ado, Grace Lynn, over to you. Thank you, Sophia, and welcome everyone. Um, have a very good, uh, good evening. So um, very quickly, um, for the rise of the digital currency, we've heard so much about it um, in the last few years, but I think more commonly known to everyone is that of Bitcoin. It comes to the mind of many, even including the cab drivers. But of late, we are hearing more about stable coins. We're hearing more about Facebook's Libra. And now the latest is the central bank digital currency. So very quickly, um, I will invite our panel, our panelists today to actually walk with us very quickly, trace out the path and the development of the above currency and help to put things in perspective for our audience so that we can understand where and how all this is developing, at least at this very juncture. Um, would you like to start? 
maybe we can hear your thoughts since you work with uh, a lot of the uh, uh, central banks and uh, in advisory work in this space as well. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think uh, it very much makes sense to talk about CBDC in the context of uh, Bitcoin and stable coins and certain other types of private money because the uh, generation of uh, retail CBDC that are intended to be available to anybody as a potential means of payment uh, is very much driven by the growth in private money that we've seen. Um, but when we talk about CBDCs, uh, really we're talking about something that's very different compared to, for example, Bitcoin or stable coins like Tether, for example. Um, so with Bitcoin, many would say that um, it's not really a very viable form of money in the conventional sense um, because it's not a good store of value, it's very volatile. Um, it's not really widely used as a, a unit of account and there aren't that many um, merchants and individuals and businesses that, that accept it. Um, so it's really being used very much as an investment uh, asset by, by many people who are interested in, in uh, trading in it um, or just holding it. Um, take stablecoins by comparison, we've seen the rise of stablecoins um, over the past uh, year or two in particular, um, and proposals for stablecoins being implemented on a uh, almost global basis. We've seen Libra, for example. Um, stablecoins are different in that they tend to be pegged to um, some other underlying, typically a fiat currency, could also be a commodity. Um, and uh, there we really have um, something that is denominated in proper fiat currency, but relies on payment rails and on a payment infrastructure that's provided by the private sector. Um, and that is uh, a key point where CBDC comes into play, where the, the central banks come into play because uh, they are concerned that that privately run infrastructure could ultimately form um, uh, a problem um, in terms of you know, exposing the financial system to, uh, to risk um, and central banks are, are concerned that they don't have you know, sufficient, sufficient control over what's happening with stable coins. So CBDC is intended to be a risk-free alternative to that, uh, certainly insofar as we're talking about retail CBDC issued directly by a central bank um, uh, to anyone who wants to hold it as an alternative to cash. Thank you, Hagen. Joe, what, what's your thoughts on um, the, the likes of Bitcoin versus fiat and versus uh, CBDC from your point of view, especially in the payment space? I think Hagen uh, gave a really good overview um, on you know Bitcoin and stablecoin and CBDC. I only just want to add a few more, a couple more things to that. Right? Uh, so it is store of value. It is meant to be for payments. Uh, you know, Hagen touched on you know using Bitcoin as an, as an investment, as an asset class for that. But I think for the price to appreciate, there has to be a wider adoption and a wider usability of, of Bitcoin and um, you know, cryptocurrencies uh, and BPCs in, in general. Right? So the, the, the original, you know, the, the business problem around payments, especially around cross-border payments, is that one is that it is slow, right? So when you send money uh, you know, through the bank rails, it takes uh, days. Um, it is expensive, right? So there are bank fees, there are effects, there's price charges. And that um, there's a lot of complexity around, around compliance. There's layers and layers of complexity um, to 
fight against money laundering, terrorism financing, and, and fraud. So with Bitcoin being digital, uh, it is instant. It is almost free except for the volatility and the price. So it is hard to um, put a price on, on, on a good or a service using Bitcoin because you may receive um, you know, payments in Bitcoin, but you pay your suppliers in your local currency, whether it's a ringgit or a dollar or rupiah, right? Um, and, uh, and so there's a discrepancy and then you absorb a lot of that risk as, as a merchant. Um, the other part is around safety and around trust, right? Um, and that is, you know, central to, to payments. And Bitcoin, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, it is used in the dark web. Um, and then it's used for all kinds of uh, nefarious activities, right? It could be, um, you know, <clears throat> drugs or weapons or vice, porn, right? Uh, prostitution, trafficking, right? The list goes on. So, so that is, you know, uh, Bitcoin, you know, utilization um, uh, for money laundering and terrorism financing and all kinds of financial crimes. And then, so now we are going to abstract the new layer of stable coins, uh, CBDC, um, to address the safety issues, right? Um, in addition to payments being instant and, and free, or if not, you know, very low cost and low fees. Thank you. Sean, so from, from a um, banking's point of view, what, what are all these mean to you, to the banks uh, in general? The stablecoin, the bitcoins, and the CBDCs? Yeah, I think um, without trying to rehash the, the same points, but uh, just for audience benefit, the key takeaways is that all the three asset classes, whether we talk about the pure cryptocurrencies, uh, the stablecoins, and the CBDCs would have their place in use cases, um, they are not one and the same thing, as some of you might be aware. So for those of you who are early investors and obviously the cryptocurrencies out there, uh, you do see that there are, it's still being used as a mode of payment, mode of barter, mode of exchange of value, and, and, and in some instances, storage of value. Uh, and now what you probably see with stable coins is it allows for um, a lot of other sort of issuers as well as investors to look at different use cases of stable coins. Now, stable coins is not a sort of a legally defined term. It, it's currently known as a, a white term to encapsulate a number of structures out there. Uh, for example, uh, the most common ones that people be aware is your Libra uh, proposal. And then you have JP Morgan coin. So essentially, it, it, it's, it's two, two, two things. One is it, it's backed by either real life assets, it's backed by our cryptocurrencies, or it's backed by other financial assets. And in some instances, you do have algorithmic uh, stable coins as well. And then the next one we talked about earlier is obviously your uh, central bank digital currency. Now, central bank digital currency uh, is not purely a cryptocurrency in itself. It, it is a legal tender uh, issued by a central bank of a particular jurisdiction that will be accepted and recognized as a mode of payment and a mode of, 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 of commerce. So I think there are different use cases and, and what we're seeing, even on the institutional side now, people are looking at it at dif at, at, as different types of, of asset classes. So it's not one size fit all. Um, they are used for different, different uses at, at this point in time. Thank you, John. I think that gives us and an audience a good starting point for today's discussion um, as yeah. to how, where are we starting from. And from the panel, um, I hear 
the mention of the, the pros and the cons already of all the various uh, three format of uh, coins and currency. So I would like to move on to the next one to say, um, I, I think many in the audience will also have heard and read um, of, uh, of late, especially end of last year. And this year, it has been hailed as the year of the CBDC. And that started because last year onwards, the, 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 you know, Mark Zuckerberg made a case for Libra. Central banks started experimenting. EIS did a survey amongst 80 over countries. And in fact, they were surprised to find that three quarters of the respondents are at varying stage of testing out the viability of using C uh, CBDC at some point in time. And as well, some of them are already experimenting, in fact, on their use cases. So these countries includes like China, of course, uh, Sweden, France, UK, even in Asia, Singapore, Korea, and Thailand. So what's that like? Um, and I would like to ask um, perhaps with John um, first, what do you think are the motivation for all these countries to want to get into this space side by side with the large corporates? What, what are the separate motivations from the country's perspective, sovereign's perspective versus that of a large corporate's perspective? Is it politically driven? Is it for control of global trades? Or is also you know, for national security? Yeah, I think there are different reasons of motivation out there. As we speak, there are more than half a dozen, more than a, a, a dozen projects that, that we are aware of attracts globally. So a number of them are looking at what we call to, to resolve cross-border payment. Uh, as we know, a lot number of you, uh, if you are making high-value payment on a, on a weekend, at this point in time, the banking system shuts down. And even if does, they don't operate on a 24-7 basis. You might say, I can make payment now. Why is it a problem? That's more as a storage value facility, small micropayment domestically. But we make cross-border payment. Uh, that is a problem that a lot of central banks are working together to resolve in terms of 24-7, faster, cheaper, seamless cross-border payment. That's the goal. The other thing that a uh, number of initiatives, why they're doing it, one, there's a declining use of cash. With COVID-19, as we are facing right now, uh, the Bank of International Settlement have just issued a report just a few days ago, fresh on their minds. There is a fear of people using banknotes or coins right now because of the concern of transmission of, of uh, the pandemic via use or, or soil banknotes. So a number of central banks, um, U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, closer to home, you have the Bank of Korea, uh, Bank of Japan, and Bank of China, the PBOC, have actually quarantined and sterilized uh, used bank notes and replaced with new notes. At the same time, you have in Europe and in and, 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 and Middle East and, and parts of here, people are encouraging what we call contactless payments and digital payment platforms. So with lockdowns and inability to go to the ATM, concern of, of, of the transmission of COVID, what we're seeing now for the first time is the regulators now realize that there's a potential benefit to have alternative mode of payment. So the days of just using pure cash, the days of just using a wallet, um, they basically now realize that the push leveraging on technology to have multiple avenues of payment is key. Why is it key? Payment, as you know, is a lifeblood of commerce. Payment is also the enabler for settlement, payment, storage of value. It's your gateway to financial inclusion. It's the gateway to reach out to the unbanked, uh, especially in the parts of Asia. In, in, in ASEAN alone, you're talking about 650 million people 
and more than half of them currently are unbanked. They do not have a bank account. That is a huge potential, and that's that's where uh, most institutions, central banks, financial institution, fintech wants to be. John, when you uh, talk about financial inclusion, it warms the corporates of my heart. That's where you know uh, change. Yeah. Uh, we are um, extremely passionate about solving that, that problem. Um, you know, you know, stablecoin by definition, it's it, it's stable, right? It's supposed to solve the problem of the volatility of the pricing in in Bitcoin or Ethereum or other altcoins. Um, so that uh, USDT uh, or Tether, which is the, the, the most famous or most infamous of, uh, of the stable coins, um, in, in theory is pegged at a dollar, um, and that uh, it in theory is backed by a dollar, right? And so there's a, there's a level of trust um, behind USDT, and people you know, hold it and people trade it. Um, so stable coin, by definition, it, it is stable and it solved that problem. Um, the CD, um, the CBDC, you know, which is issued, like you mentioned, is legal tender. Um, that will disrupt the banks because suddenly now that you know you and I can pay each other um, using a digital form of cash, um, you know, from my wallet to your wallet, whether it's analog or digital, uh, without going to a bank, right? And this is, um, you know, it, it is consumer driven, uh, it is demand driven, and it is market driven, right? It is the 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 new world where we are now, where we finally realize, acknowledge in, uh, that money is dirty, right? And that we need to resolve it so that we don't uh, pass it you know, through banknotes. And, and even in the US where it is uh, through e-payments, um, they still touch the, you know, the, you know, when you go buy a, a coffee or ice cream, you, you still touch a, um, um, uh, an iPad, right? And you know, everybody touches that, right? Um, to make a payment. And so they even want to abstract that out. So, um, so there, there, there are different facets, different dynamics in play that are driving this. But um, in the end, you know, um, this digitization of, of money, um, it is consumer driven and that it is, um, um, <clears throat> and in CBDC, that central banks, are, you know, by legacy, right? They, 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 are, they move like glaciers. Um, they're a huge aircraft carrier. They will not twist and turn on a dime. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're forced um, to make these changes um, because of the market. So, in, in the light, Higgin, how, how is the CBDC then going to displace the US dollar? As we know, more than 50% of the world's trade are now currently denominated in US dollar, and in fact, similar percentage in, in global assets um, as well by the investors. So with CBDC in place, does that mean that we will see a diminishing importance of US dollar in the years to come? That's one. Two, um, does that also mean that politically, US is going to lose quite a bit of a, a clout over the rest of the other countries in the world? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there are many facets to that question. Uh, the US itself, of course, um, recently, as part of uh, the first iteration of the proposed stimulus package to counter the impact of uh, COVID-19, um, did um, suggest a digital dollar, um, which uh, was, you know, very interesting um, in terms of the suggestion. Um, ultimately, that hasn't been included in the stimulus. 
Um, but that was a strong acknowledgement that actually, especially in times of uh, stress, as we're seeing at the moment, um, having that type of CBDC, dollar-denominated dollar CBDC, uh, would be quite, quite helpful and would take the risk out of the banking system. Um, to your question around adoption of the USD, I think that very much uh, depends on what various trading counterparties and various businesses around the world uh, prefer. For the time being, USD is very much the uh, predominant currency when it comes to international trade, um, trade of commodities, trade of uh, various types of good, certainly. Um, so really we'll have to see whether there is any other type of means of payment that can uh, provide additional um, incentives to move away from USD if that means of payment is not itself USD denominated. Um, and then we come into you know, all of the points that, uh, that uh, John has already uh, raised around you know, efficiencies potentially being gained in terms of you know, cross-border payments, um, et cetera. But uh, for now, I don't see the, uh, the hegemony or the uh, uh, dominance of the, the, the US dollar being threatened. So, Joe, with, with your passion for the unbanked and the underserved, um, and I think you, you mentioned that, you know, briefly just now, what is, what is the role in the CBDC for the frontier and emerging countries then that currently rely on US financing, funding and trades? Uh, do you agree with what John said? Like for the time being, we will still go with the US dollar until you know, over time it's got proven. Because ultimately, no matter whether we're dealing with fiat currency or digital currency, trust and faith is the first and foremost, I think, important criteria. Yeah. Uh, I think that your question is in two parts, right? One is on trade itself and the other one is on financial inclusion of the unbanked. Um, so on the trade side, it's, you know, it's predominantly on, on the dollar. The, the, the um, um, oil, right, the largest commodity is priced on the dollar. Um, the US is still the largest economy in the world at $23 you know, trillion. And, and so you know, the world pretty much runs on, on, uh, on, on the dollar. Uh, in my business, uh, even though if I if I trade with other currencies, uh, it always goes back to a dollar before it, it goes to the other currency. Um, so it, it is safe to stay at least for a while. Right? Um, and if you have a a, a a Federal Reserve Bank, you know, issued um, digital U.S. dollar, I think that will still be be prominent. The only difference is that when um, you know, let's say one of our central banks within our neighborhood issues a, uh, a CBDC, it is backed by reserves, right? Um, but, you know, the US dollar by default, is not backed by reserves, and therefore the CBDC from the Federal Reserve Bank will not be backed by, by reserves. It's basically, you know, in God we trust. Um, and that, you know, the US will make good of, um, of the dollar behind it, um, of the T-bills of the and, and, and the T-notes uh, behind that. Um, so I think that will, will not change. It's just going to take a f different form from is it going to be an analog dollar or is it going to be a digital dollar? But I think trade, you know, petrodollars uh, will, still, will still dominate. On the other side of financial inclusion, um, you know, it, it, <clears throat> John, you know, actually write about, you know, in our neighborhood, you know, ASEAN, um, you know, at least 50% who are unbanked, right? And that uh, they, so they do not get, you know, services such as, you know, savings or, or, or loans. 
um, to run their small businesses. And I think this is where the central banks can come in, step in uh, with a you know, uh, CBDC, so as a form of payment for peer-to-peer. For -peer. Uh, like I mentioned that with CBDC, the banks are gonna be disrupted, meaning that, um, you know, Grace, I could pay you uh, from my wallet to your wallet and not go through a DBS or an OCBC, right, for that matter. Um, and so by the unbanked, by definition, they don't have a bank account, but then, you know, you can do payments peer-to-peer um, without a bank, you know, being in the middle. So I think that will solve, you know, a significant portion of that uh, problem about the unbanked. And the unbanked comes in in two main forms, right? So one is that, you know, you are in uh, an area, in rural area, where there are no bank, banks, uh, banking services, whether it's a bank branch or an ATM, or another use case, uh, which is also a big business, a big problem, is around refugees, right? So as refugees leave their country uh, with nothing but the shirt on their back, they have no identity, they have no passport. Um, so how do you uh, define their digital identity is one, and how do you get uh, payments to them, right? Uh, resources to them um, so that they can go about their day-to-day -day operations. And I think that CBDC, uh, without the bank in the middle, uh, going directly to your wallet, uh, that will solve a problem. And if I may just add one more, another use case is um, the solidarity budget where we are all supposed to get $600, right? Or in the US where everyone's supposed to get $400. Um, today, you have to go to a website, a web page, uh, into your SingPass to, to, to state which is your bank account, you know, form to the IRS, right? Which is your bank account to receive that payment. So with the CBDC, you can remove that layer uh, of the bank disrupt them basically and pay directly to the consumer. Interesting. Well, life is going to be very different then. In that case, you know, having CBC in, in, in the in world is everything that we do. Right? In the next three months, we'll talk about COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic, right? Yeah. COVID-19 has kind of uh, accelerated a lot of uh, digital initiatives on all fronts, across all sectors, industry, including this space. You know, tremendously, right? And and the, the longer we, we hang on into this situation, not getting out of this all this semi and fully locked down, the more that everyone will paddle faster to try and, and find a solution to the digital world. Okay, so well that makes sense. Can I just ask one more question? Uh, for large corporates uh, like a Facebook or maybe you know Amazon tomorrow or, or, or Alibaba tomorrow, to to also introduce their their you know. CBDC, corporate CBDC version, stable coins into the marketplace. So if, if that's the case, aren't consumer in the street uh, facing with kind of two groups of currency to use? One, central bank and sovereign related. So I can be holding a Chinese, Chinese version, a Singapore version. Um, on the other hand, I also could be holding on to a Libra and Alibaba version, for instance. And now, which other currency do I use to pay them, you know, for my goods and services or my cross-border uh, services as well? Yeah, just, just on that, you raise a very good question. Uh, the, the value proposition for central bank digital currency is it, it is the same as you holding a bank note, but you, you, you're going to hold it in your wallet in a digital format. So I guess it's issued by the central bank. So the concept of your Libra coin uh, is actually look at it. It's a privately issued digital token that is asset backed by a financial assets, whether it's a fiat currency, uh, whether it's other types of, of hard assets or other cryptos or algorithmic sort of, uh, sort of uh, formula. So, but if you look at the way Libra works, uh, Libra is not a legal tender. 
the way Libra works, it's worked as a stable coin. By definition, the coin is backed by a something of value. So in this case, it will be backed by uh, the currency. So the Libra uh, project, the way it's done is it's, it's, it's going to be backed by a, a fiat currency. So in the value proposition for them is they do not want to operate as a bank. What they want to do is to enable faster, cheaper payment within their ecosystem. So Facebook has about $2.5 billion, billion customers in the ecosystem, 1.3 billion active users on a daily basis. Just to give you the stats, in India, the number of users using Facebook is more than the number of people holding a bank account in India. That's staggering. So in Indonesia, the number of people using Facebook is more than the number of people that have bank accounts as well. So you could look at it, the, the value proposition they want to do is, if you look at Facebook, what is it now? It's no longer just a social media. It's an e-commerce tool. It's a tool for people to do business, not just you know, social media. They've gone beyond the business model. So if you look at a business model now, they earn more from ads, they earn more from e-commerce. Um, they, they are a business in itself rather than just seeing as a social media. So they have different value proposition and um, what they're committed to do is work with for the financial institution being plugged in. They have no desire to be a bank because otherwise they'll be subject to uh, large capital requirements, uh, capitalization requirements, licensing requirements. Uh, they want to focus on where the core strength is and, and what they're good at. So, you know, especially also if you look at the cryptocurrencies, they have their own value proposition. So it, it's, it's like uh, the investors are spot for choice. You have different asset classes for different users. And perhaps just to, to pick up on the point around whether users will choose uh, CBDC or they'll choose um, a given type of e-money or stablecoin, I think it will depend really mainly on, on two things. One is usability and the other is uh, financial or monetary benefit. So if you take usability first, I think the, uh, the Chinese example with the, the People's Bank of China uh, introducing its own CBDC, retail CBDC, is, is a very interesting development because um, in a way it's, it's a, a huge um, leap that uh, the, the, the central bank in China is taking and a bit of a risk because you know, it's basically wagering that um, its CBDC will be as usable and as popular as the wildly popular um, WeChat Pay and Alipay, which of course is used so um, broadly within China that um, physical cash hardly plays a role anymore. Um, so recognizing that uh, the PBOC, of course, has uh, gone to, to great lengths to involve key banks and, and players such as Alipay in, in various trials and, and pilot testing for, for the new CBDC. Um, also, we're told based on, on media reports. Um, so usability is going to be you know, a real key in defining you know, whether CBDC becomes adopted or not. The other point really is whether CBDC uh, is remunerated. And what we mean by that is, uh, will it generate interest for people who hold it um, much in the way that deposits at a bank generate interest. Um, now, of course, today, the only thing that I can have issued directly by a central bank to me is cash, and that doesn't generate interest for me. Um, but as part of its monetary tools, central, a central bank might well decide to uh, 
make CBDC uh, remunerable um, so that it can regulate the amount of interest uh, that is payable on the CBDC. It could, could even be negative interest, uh, depending on the monetary objectives to be achieved. Um, but really, one of the key considerations is how do you steer the right number of people away from bank deposits and away from um, e-money, such as WeChat Pay and Alipay, um, towards adoption of CBDC without generating a run on the banks that would destabilize the monetary system. And that is a very, uh, a very delicate balance to, to strike. And I think that is one of the key reasons why there is a lot of caution in approaching the, the CBDC topic. So on the note of monetary system and in view of the current COVID crisis, um, we have seen the various central banks rolling out several iterations of stimulus packages and all that. And in the previous one, that was just not too long ago, the Lima crisis, the great financial crisis, where you know all central banks around the world had to pump in liquidity in order to save the banks from collapsing. If we have a CBDC and central banks and countries are using CBDC, um, how then are they going to effectively implement a monetary and fiscal policy that's one? And that will also likely mean, does it not to say that we need to overhaul the financial and accounting system to accommodate the new currencies of the new world where central banks can effectively do their role, perform their role? Yeah, I think you, you raise a very good question. Um, as you note, what Hagen mentioned earlier, uh, in the earlier draft version of the US stimulus bill, uh, the Democrats had proposed a, a, you know, a digital currency format. The reason was there was a concern that under the current stimulus package, by the time it reaches consumer, uh, report have said it takes something like at least six to eight weeks before people get money into their system because US is such a large country. By the time it gets, uh, trans, you know, trans, you know, the money gets, gets to reach the hands of consumer, you, you, you probably uh, be a bit delayed. So the ideal situation that if, 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 if hypothetically people have their wallet, uh, they can actually transmit a wire money uh, on an instant basis such that you can actually use it. So I think now people have, the, the regulators have do realize that there is value proposition to pursue uh, some form of a cryptographic digitized way of digitized money. So um, they are exploring. Uh, we are aware uh, a number of projects out there. Last week, the Bank of England hold a, a public webinar where 12,000 people participated. Uh, despite the fact that you know it's it's everyone is a lockdown, there's a huge keen interest. But what they propose is to look at the value proposition of what a central bank digital currency would look like. So it's still very much a proof of concept. But what we can say is that the number amount of attention by regulators to actually coordinate on a cross border basis to actually make it happen uh, is quite is quite uh, encouraging because we have never seen this before. And what they are keen to do is to actually create an international framework to enable cross-border payments. So, so the day will come. So just key takeaways here for all the audience. It's not a question of, uh, it's not a question of whether this will happen. It will happen. This is a question of when it will happen. It's not a question of if, it is a question of when. Uh, a number of projects are already in flight. If you look at China, uh, some of you have already seen a screenshot of a trial uh, they have done on the DCEP, which is the uh, Chinese version of, of, of uh, central bank digital currency. 
where you already have a snapshot of an Agriculture Bank of China app, where they use very much similar to a WeChat payment, where you can receive payment, make payment on a, a Chinese renminbi. So the trial has been completed, obviously within closed loop. Looks promising, but in, in other regions like the, the, the Bank of England, uh, the Bank of France, the US, uh, even here in MES, a number of central banks are already trialing these projects. Some are in the public domain via white paper, public consult. Quite a number of them are behind closed doors, working with vendors, working with uh, providers to test the hypothesis whether that works. So, so it doesn't mean that we will launch something right away this year, especially in the West. But what we are saying is, um, as they learn more about it, the day will come that the collaboration will result in some form of a CBDC. So John, I mean, when you talk about central banks, and let's look at what's happening at home, right, with, with MES. Uh, and right here in, in our own backyard. Um, MS has just repealed uh, a 35-year-old law um, act rather on you know, remittances and money changing and replaced it with something that's contemporary um, that integrates and digitizes payments, right? Um, that wraps up uh, cross-border payments, domestic payments, wallets, uh, digital payment tokens in addition to money changing. So uh, you know, we are laying the groundwork right here at home uh, for payments and for digitizing the, those payments. And then we have, um, you know, pay now, right? Uh, or, or fast rather, where, you know, there's interoperability between banks that um, I can send, you know, from my bank to your bank, which is different, and it'll be instantly, right? And almost free, basically. Um, and, and we've adhered to, uh, or rather MS have adhered to international standards, ISO, ISO standards, so that we can interoperate with other similar systems like in thailand we have prompay uh in malaysia you have do it now um so you look at the big five in asean uh indonesia and philippines are next and so that um you're right john is uh, it's a matter of when and it's going to be really really soon where we'll be able to send payments cross-border uh seamlessly right uh, we can do it today with um in malaysia and singapore uh do it now and um and, and pay now are integrated. It's a little bit expensive, it's a bit pricey, it's $2 per click or $2 per transaction, but I think that will go down. So, um, so you know, it will quickly spread, you know, across the, the big five in ASEAN, the whole of ASEAN, and then beyond our borders. Um, and, and coming back to um, the, 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 I think that in, in terms of the, the US um, and the, the CARES Act, right, the $2 trillion CARES Act, um, again, right, the, the Democrats really wanted to, to big that in, uh, in digital payments, uh, because they, they saw it was a big problem, right? You know, sending money out uh, through a check, right, or even through the, you know, ACH uh, automatic clearinghouse system is just outdated. Um, and it's slow and it's expensive. And, you know, the, the, ex the expensive part is not just getting the money to you, but after that, you know, for you to spend the money, and to get it back into the economy and to re-kick or restart the economy. So I think you're seeing something that, you know, it's completely market-driven, uh, that, you know, that, that there is a need for CBDCs and digital payments, you know, one form or the other. Um, and I just want to touch on, you know, uh, Grace, uh, you mentioned about, you know, I have all these options, you know, what do I choose, right? Do I use BTC to pay or fiat or cash or, or CBDC? Um, it's really up to the use case, right? And, you know, as soon as you digitize payments and CBDC, 
um, you know, we, we safeguard, you know, uh, safety and privacy and that, and suddenly, right, you know, uh, if I give you cash, you know, Grace, you know, we got for Ruti Pata, I give you $10. It's anonymous, right? Uh, nobody knows except you and me that I gave you $10. But as soon as I give you a, a, a digital SGD, a CBDC, we leave um, digital footprints, right? Um, and it's a matter of, you know, what is the use case, right? Um, you know, if I give $10 to Grace Lane for Ruti Prata, $10, you know, you know, I have nothing to hide, but there could be some other activities that, you know, I may not be so proud of, uh, and they, they, I may want to bury, and I may not use the digital route for that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thought, because that's going to narrow the options for the dodgy businesses that's, you know, carrying on in the, in the darker corners of, of our lives. And then in that case, um, with, with CBDC, and def definitely is a when, not an if, um, then definitely payment system like change and other payment system and banks, big global banks like uh, Standard Chartered, it's going to play a very important role in the distribution of the CBDC and into the man in the street, isn't it? Because that, that, is, that is part of the ecosystem. And what kind of roles do you imagine, you know, for, for instance, John, uh, Standard Chartered's point of view or Global Bank's point of view, how, how does a Global Bank come into play in, in the distribution of this? And, and Joe has already, you know, outlined quite clearly about payment system and the role they play, uh, even all the way to the, uh, the, uh, the more emerging markets. So from a global point of view, global commercial point of view, what, what do you guys see being able to play an active role in order to bring this forward? Sure. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's, it goes without saying that with anything else, with potential benefit comes with risks and challenges. And it goes to show that the, with the innovation in payments, innovation and in all these digital uh, modes of, of, of payment or exchange, uh, banking and finance as we know it is disrupted. So there are two ways to face it. One, you look at it as a disruption and therefore feel fearful. Or two, you look at potential, how do you adapt and, 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 and uh, make yourself relevant as an institution to tap into the sort of new uh, fintech landscape. So just to give an example, right? Uh, a number of institutions, um, you know, it's, it's just all these are public. Uh, they have actually come together to form, like for example, uh, trade association uh, like Voltron to look at how do, we, how do we work together to provide trade finance, to provide uh, audit trails, traceability, uh, removing middlemen, uh, and then also removing operational risk with, uh, you know, with with uh, removing fraud and 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 ensuring that the uh, supply chain, the trade finance life cycle is addressed through uh, capturing of, of real time data, uh, traceability, immutability of record. So, in terms of just to give a sort of a broad brush, what we are seeing in in banking is moving away from just digital banking. You you have a whole set of Potential uh, use cases, uh, we already have seen it in a number of cases. You can do loan syndication, uh, e leveraging on, 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 on you know, a blockchain or DLT platform. Uh, we also look at what we call tokenization of financial assets. And by the way, right, if you look at the tokenization of financial assets, you should say that we already have all kinds of equities. Or, or, or If you actually look at the hard, real financial assets, like properties, commodities, they have not reached the sort of mess yet. It's, it's actually kind of difficult for a lot of the investors to invest, partly because it's illiquid. Uh, it's not cross-border in nature. 
and the the ability of of the new technology allows for fractional ownership faster way of 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 uh, monetization or, or issuance of those so the potential is there but having said that the ecosystem is not there yet what i mean by that the governance the, the legal and regulatory framework um then you've got cybersecurity and others kind of risk that is currently being worked on there is a framework that that among regulators among public bodies they are actually trying to resolve they are actually trying to solve it, it, it will not take very long I'm looking at perhaps three to five years that you actually will see a, a sizable uh, sort of deal that is being done as we speak uh, trade finance is the first to go in terms of uh, tokenization and then moving on the sort of value chain is is your real assets like real estate uh, you know hard assets that is likely to come into play. And then the other thing that, that a number of institutions are focused on, uh, a number of fintech firms have started the custody of crypto assets traditionally. But if you actually look at what's out there where publicly by institution, there is an institutional pent-up demand to have what we call the institutional-grade custody of crypto assets, not just pure cryptocurrencies, but crypto assets as we know it, including stablecoin. Um, because if you actually look at fidelity, they have said they're willing to invest 3% of their 3 trillion AUM to look at these new asset classes. Well, obviously, they haven't invested all that money, but if you actually extrapolate that kind of money, it's a lot of money on the table. And this is as a result of their institutional client demand, not because they wanted to do it. That's very good. Um, one yeah. last question before we throw the... Uh, uh, open to the floor to, uh, for Q&A, is that um, you know Singapore is um, accelerating in its uh, progress towards a smart nation. And with CDC, uh, CBDC opening up, it's definitely a add-on that we cannot do without. Do you see, does anyone here, I'll throw it to the panel, anyone see any challenges that we could potentially need to overcome in order to make it successful and faster towards you know, getting our whole nation digitized I, I might, I might uh, take that one up. So I think uh, the, the key challenges have um, actually been addressed relatively uh, succinctly in the, in the new Payment Services Act as far as payments go. Um, and Joe has already touched on this. So a key point really is interoperability so that uh, we can allow payment systems and wallets to speak to each other within Singapore, but also on a, on a cross-border basis. Um, AML, CTF considerations are also key because obviously, again, as Joe has said, uh, there is always the potential for misuse of any uh, type of electronic form of payment. Um, and so that's you know, something where Singapore is doing well to uh, live up to, to FATF standards um, and, and where we've been very uh, proactive here. Um, but I mean, what I'd say about the, the Smart Nation Initiative is that uh, CBDC is something that would, um, would complement that push towards you know, electronic payments very, very well. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to put your finger on exactly what the motivating factors for a CBDC would be here in Singapore. Um, obviously, each jurisdiction has uh, its own peculiarities. Um, I think what makes it attractive is that uh, it will help innovation and 
you know, it will effectively be something that will be rolled out uh, hand in hand with the private sector. As John says, you know, it will actually spark a lot of innovation on the, on the banking side and amongst payment services firms. Um, so, you know, I think that the private sector and the public sector would, would work pretty, um, uh, would, would work in, in mutual sort of complementarity. Uh, with each other there, um, and you have interesting things that can be put into into CBDC. So, uh, you know, you can have micro payments for very small payments. If you want to buy a magazine, for example, or you just want to read the magazine, um, things like that, which you know, electronically you, you might not even use a card for. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 very interesting what you can do, and I think that uh, CBDC would be very complementary to, to, to the smart nation push. For, yeah. for smart nation, right? If you if you drill down, right, smart nation, you know, smart financial services, smart banking, smart payments. Um, you know, one is that you know you 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 want the money to move freely, right? Uh, move in real time, low cost, ideally zero cost, um, low or zero risk, and and high fidelity, meaning that there's high trust, high security, and and high safety. But ultimately, you know, you could build all that, the technology is there, the business processes are there, but you also want to address the customer experience that um, it's easy to use, that, you know, you don't have to go into multiple, you know, security levels, uh, passwords, 2FA, you know, so that I can pay $1 for my data rate, right? Um, so it has to be a, a seamless uh, and a, and and. and customer experience. So that is another thing that, that we, we need to address. And I think it's, it's getting there, right? So, you know, I can go to um, the, the food court when, you know, um, even today I can do that just to tap out. But, you know, and to pay it's just, you know, use my pay la, pay now, I, I it's face ID and I scan the barcode and I'm done. Um, so I think we are, we're getting there. Um, I think domestically, um, you know, we're looking at the adoption of um, all the different stalls because you know, ultimately, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's free to us as a consumer, but it may not be free to the merchant, right? Um, so that 3%, that 10 cents, 20 cents could become a, a big proportion if you are selling, you know, $2 of a Luxa. So, so cost needs to be addressed to the merchants. Right now, it's just free, free for everybody. Um, the customer experience has to be simple and easy uh, and seamless. Uh, and that, I think, will drive adoption uh, towards the smart payments and smart banking and our smart nation. We have a question here from the audience um, and he or she asks, will Facebook actually be allowed to launch Libra or do you think the project will be blocked by governments? I, I think governments, uh, I'll, I'll just take a quick step at this and uh, John and Hagen uh, can continue with it. I think it, governments will, uh, are, are going to protect their sovereignty, right? That, you know, to have another uh, company come in and say that, you know, I have a new form of payment, is based on a, a basket of assets, or bas a basket of currencies, uh, and, and disrupt them, right? So I, um, so I think central banks that are just by default will, will not allow that. Um, but I think there's also a, a trust issue, right? Um, uh, people don't trust Facebook. People don't trust Google. So how much more data do I want to give them? Uh, you know, do I want to give, give them enough payments? Uh, who do I pay to versus who do I chat with or who do I spend, you know, birthday, birthdays with? Um, you know, that rich and granularity of, of, of big data um, just 
makes them get to know you and know you a lot better than, than you know yourself, right? So, um, and for me, I'm a huge advocate of privacy. Uh, I safeguard my privacy, you know, very well, even though, you know, I, I, I can declare that I'm relatively a, a good boy. Um, and that, um, so I think that there's a trust issue, um, you know, central banks will, uh, will put the guardrails down, down, but also on the consumer side, um, there is this trust issue that needs to be overcome uh, before I think there's a wide adoption for, uh, for something like a Libra. John? Um, probably I have a sort of a, a sort of a different take on this. Not saying I think uh, what Joe mentioned does resonate in the sense that uh, if you look at the uh, financial stability bond and and the IOSCO, these are international setting bodies that had in the last one week issued global stable coin uh, paper in guidance. And just fresh off the press, yesterday, uh, the Financial Stability Board issued a 10-point recommendation what a global stablecoin would look like. So all the things we just discussed earlier about governance, having control, treating customers fairly, ensuring your data privacy is ensured, and all those things uh, are, are relevant. So any, any organization, regardless of who they are, whether it's um, Google or, or, or Facebook, they now need to understand that if the stable coin is of a global reach, most likely they will have obviously need to get certain licensing in, in the jurisdiction in which they, they want to reach out to, especially if they treat and behave like what we call a systematically important payment system. So in the past, you adopt the approach that, look, you know, if I don't take deposits, if I don't make payment, I can be lightly regulated. I think the days where if you are of a such a, a sort of international reach and based on the FSB guidance and the IOSCO guidance that just came fresh the last 24 hours, uh, they have set out a roadmap for institution to actually be able to roll out. But the bar is very high. So anyone now, I mean, uh, in the past, we get people say, you know, I, I do a lot of stable coins. Now, there's a distinction between your domestic private stable coin as opposed to a stable coin that had uh, wide, reach, wide reach, almost like uh, a fiat currency type of situation, like an asset bank. So I think in those, those sort of uh, global stable coin, they'll be subject to more stringent requirements. Uh, the bar is high, as I mentioned, and, and uh, they need to comply in the jurisdiction in which they're incorporated, in the jurisdiction in which they are targeting their end clients. So I think because the bar is high, that means the number of players that are able to actually do the stable coins, you know, you, you, your guess is as good as mine. It has to be international in nature. It has someone who has the clout and the ability to do it. But it's not saying that you haven't seen any of those yet. Uh, the test is in the pudding. But um, for some institution out there, uh, even like for JP Morgan, they have their, their JP Morgan coin. Uh, and then you have USDC. Gemini. So a number of them are trying to solve different things. Some of them are using it as a counterweight towards the crypto volatility, as you see with Gemini Feather. But um, you also have you know, collateral tokens uh, being used, like for example, with MakerDAO. So there are different use cases. But what I mentioned is that if you want to be in as a payments token of a global reach, then you need to meet those requirements. Uh, I would also add to that that, of course, the requirements differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and John has touched on that. So, 
Um, you can aspire to be a global stable coin, but actually the way that you would roll out your operations would probably be very much incrementally on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. And uh, the way that regulation works at the moment in the payment space, uh, you would typically need some kind of implantation in each of those jurisdictions and you would need to satisfy capital requirements in each of those jurisdictions, assuming that you're a regulated institution, conduct of business requirements. There is you know, a lot of compliance resource required um, in order to you know, launch uh, a stable kind in, in, in one jurisdiction, let alone on a, on a global level. Um, so the introduction even of, of Libra, um, which you know, has the resources potentially to do this, will not happen overnight and there will be policy hurdles um, at every level of the way as the likes of, of Facebook try to implement this. Thank you. That, that actually resonates I think with a lot of um, 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 bankers as well. Um, you know, as we live amongst the world of finance and regulation and it's increasing over time rather than less. So nevertheless, I think that's a very natural expectation. I have one more question here that said, uh, asked, is there a need for high tech literacy rate amongst the masses before the launch of CBDC? So I think we're talking about mass adoption. So do you need high tech literacy rate amongst the users before you have good uh, um, full uh, adoption of CBDC? Uh, I think the short answer is it depends on the design. Um, as you mentioned, CBDC is, is at its most simplicest uh, format is a digitized form of, of your fiat currency or, or, or legal tender. But if, if, if parties overlay the design uh, to be very, very complicated, then the, the literacy is important because, um, like for example, if I hold a bank note right now, I know that money is mine. So if I hold it in my digital wallet, what if it's lost, what if it's hacked, and what is the design is flawed. So what happens to that money if it's not recorded? So all these things are valid questions. And that's why if you look at how people are designing CBDC, look at it like a pyramid. So at the bottom layer, it is most uh, basic is, is this a retail CBDC or a uh, interbank CBDC? The next layer is, do you need to use a blockchain or can you use your payment rails? So if you use existing payment rails, it's no different from right now what you have in, 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 in your wallet, but the only difference is the e-wallet is not a stored value facility in a, in a digital sense, in a payment account wallet. It's in a form of a digitized format of your cash. So, so as you look through that um, sort of uh, pyramid tree, there are certain design considerations that needs to be had. Um, and, and, and that forms the, uh, the uh, view in terms of how simple you want to reach the man. The more complex you become, then it becomes problematic because then you need to explain to the members of the public. If you keep it simple, uh, just a wallet, as, as what China is trying to do now, then it's, it's a digitized format of your wallet. But if you have all kinds of layers of uh, complexity, then, you, you, like you said, then the know your customer, uh, you know, customer, ensuring a customer is well informed, then it, it becomes more into your investment product. You need to ensure that they know why they're buying and what they're holding. Indeed. So, if, if that's the case, um, with all this thing in mind, um, our audience also like to know, um, what is the panelist's take 
on the launch of the digital currency to the masses? When do you think it'll take? When do you think it'll happen? I, I know the jury is still out there and nothing is firm. This is still very much work in progress, like you say, you know, POC concept for, for the best part of it. But as we see a lot of, and, and you have shared, a lot of uh, uh, works are being done now by global organizations, financial institutions, um, by the various central governments. There is an endpoint somewhere. So when does each of you think that we have a rough one, the simple version of it, when do you think we can have it? So the, uh, the Bank of International Settlements uh, released the results of a survey that it had conducted among, uh, I think, over 60 central banks across the world um, to gauge their interest in CBDC and to see how far down the line they are in their development uh, of CBDC or research into CBDC. And I think that survey found that um, central banks representing around a fifth of the global population are looking to introduce a CBDC of some sort, um, typically a retail CBDC, in the next few years, whatever that happened, uh, whatever that means. Um, I think mainly those banks have been banks in emerging economies, and some of the examples given were the various central banks in the Caribbean, uh, which are keen to introduce CBDCs to uh, ensure greater financial stability and resilience, to ensure greater financial inclusion, um, better robustness of cross-border payments, et cetera. Um, but I think that BIS survey is probably the most concrete and most comprehensive study into the timeframe that I've seen so far. And uh, beyond that relatively vague projection, um, it, it doesn't really seem to uh, offer much clarity. Of course, uh, the PBOC in China seems to be relatively close to, to introducing uh, its CBDC if it does introduce it. Um, but again, you know, I think the timing is unclear unless John or Joe have a view on that. My guess would be it would probably only be sometime in the next few years. Yeah, I think that the foundation has been set, right? So looking at pay now, prom pay, do it now, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, we can do... Um, uh, interoperable, you know, instant payments. Um, at the last Singapore FinTech Festival, uh, the MAS booth, uh, they demoed uh, Project Ubin, where they had uh, cross-border payments on, on blockchain. Um, and that, you know, was proof in the pudding that, uh, that it worked. So I think it's, it, it's close. Um, I think within the next three years, we'll, we'll have something, you know, some form, um, you know, within, you know, within our borders, uh, within, within Singapore. Uh, the Payment Services Act, you know, it's in place and it's, it's contemporary and it addresses digital payments and that consultative papers uh, that are being issued uh, on, on, a, on a rhythmic basis um, because as, you know, as we put up new solutions, new questions come up and they're being addressed um, and any gaps around, you know, especially uh, money laundering and fraud, right? Terrorism financing, they are being plugged very, very quickly. So if I, if I were a betting man, you know, it's within the next two, three years. Yeah, just, just without going through the uh, rehashing some of the points, which I all agree, with, I think there are different stages of, of, of projects right now. Um, the bulk of the projects right now are at the, what we call proof of concept basis and trial. The reason for that, are a couple of things. One, the technology is still nascent. Two, the governance and the legal uh, certainty in terms of what, what this takes especially from a cross-border basis, requires coordination on a global basis because it might be treated 
as a CBDC in one country, but in another country that doesn't recognize any form of digital payment, it may be treated as a sort of a not a legal tender. So I think it, it takes, as you all know, you know, if anything like of a global nature, you can't just do it domestically. It requires international coordination. And it's heartening to know that the Financial Stability Board, the Bank of Financial Settlement, and the central banks this week, uh, in, uh, obviously they have to meet virtually, they, they can't do it. So, so there is a virtual meeting as we go ahead, as we speak now. And the, one of the things in the top agenda is obviously COVID. How do you ensure financial stability and that kind of stuff? But in the context of what we discussed today, it's heartening to know that they are looking at digital payments to enable contactless payment, to also accelerate the efforts globally in looking at the viability of central bank digital currency. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's heartening to know. Let me read you this statement uh, that just came off yesterday. Technological innovation in the financial sector continue apace. And it says here that the central banks need to work together to enhance cross-border payment arrangements and to, to actually consider projects such as the stable coins and also the central bank digital currency. But however, it says in order to do this, it requires a multilateral cross-border initiative and cross-sectoral involving public authorities, public sector, private sector to come together, to work together. So, you know, amongst the sort of trying to deal with COVID-19, they have realized that technology promoting an efficient and resilient cross-border payment is key. Because no one knows how, this how long this lockdown will go whether this lockdown is going to be a permanent feature moving forward in some form or fashion. But one thing that's certain, that people are now looking at alternative mode of payment. And that, that is, is the biggest difference in terms of what has happened before COVID and what is happening after COVID. Thank you, John. Um, yeah. One of our last questions from our audience before we come to the night. Um, our audience is concerned that um, mass adoption will mean that cybersecurity aspect will be compromised. Um, and then users' you know, needs for protection and privacy is um, very important. And yet, at the same time, our audience feels that we are technically not ready at this juncture in terms of KYC, cybersecurity, PDPA. So, what needs to happen and how do you see that going along as, as the technology is being developed, as the push for, for this currency uh, uh, goes forward, especially now in, in a COVID crisis, not forgetting that we still need to protect the privacy of the user and still to ensure to ring fence, you know, the user to protect them from cybersecurity uh, risks. Okay, as we speak right now, I mean, perhaps I'll, I'll speak then allow the rest to speak. There is a separate initiative, um, obviously, in Singapore as well, across border, to look at what we call digital identity. So the day will come is that you no longer need to be physically present, such that through a, uh, an authorized notary or authorized provider that had actually, with your consent, stored the, actually, the data relating to your personal data, and with permission, uh, they can actually tap through an API under a fully encrypted basis to actually look at uh, whether you're the, you're the person that you claim you are and look and doing all the KYC AML. So the, the, the technology in some form of fashion already exists, but to actually enhance it to a, to a sort of uh, a higher level is, 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 is challenging when you adopt new technology or new emerging technology like blockchain, different network, 
And I and I think as Hagen or, or, or Joe mentioned, there are a couple of challenges that industry have to overcome before you actually have mass adoption. Cybersecurity is top of the risk. In order to do that, you need to make sure that your IT resilience and systems uh, reach to a level that is very high. Now, in terms of data privacy, uh, there are a number of solutions out there in terms of either full encryption or storing your data uh, off-chain uh, in respect to the, those technologies. So there are a number of uh, proposals out there, but it hasn't landed any one way or another what would be the global standard because we're still in early innings in terms of looking at from a design perspective. From a privacy perspective, I, I, I would add that um, there is a bit of a tension, obviously, between ensuring privacy and introducing AML standards um, that allow for better detection of financial crime, because of course, you know, one of the big advantages of having a CBDC uh, over physical cash is that uh, its use can be traced. And no doubt that is one element of CBDC um, that governments will look to, to leverage in order to you know, improve the detection of, of financial crime. Um, as far as cybersecurity goes, you know, I think that uh, Again, central banks will probably want to work with the private sector to, to find out which are the best solutions and how the, the private sector can support uh, a CBDC and you know, provide techno technology solutions that, uh, that ensure uh, both cybersecurity and, and privacy are maintained. Um, there's been you know, much talk of uh, distributed ledger technology being used uh, for that purpose, all of the uh, research papers that have been issued by the central banks talk about this to some degree. Um, so, of course, you know, using a decentralized uh, ledger to record CBDC transactions or entitlement to CBDC in some way, um, you know, can provide an immutable uh, and relatively tamper-proof record of those transactions, but comes potentially with other issues like. Um, you know deficiencies in performance and speed. Um, so, uh, you know, as John says, you know, cybersecurity is very much something that uh, that is still being looked at and and, and worked on uh, alongside privacy. I think when, with cybersecurity, what we're really talking about is the data. It's about your data, your identity, your transactions, your money, right? Um, and and data, the technology is there to protect the data. Uh, you can encrypt data, uh, but at the same time it is computationally expensive to encrypt everything. So you can be selective as to what you want to encrypt. So if you only encrypt things that can identify you, for example, your, your street address, right? But you don't have to encrypt city or, or postal code, for example. Um, and then, you know, there's some balance as to, um, you know, reaching out to the customer experience because you don't want to have a slow transaction. You want to say, if I pay, it gets approved or declined, and then it can go, right? Um, and at the same time, you know, what are the la layers of security that you want um, to get into your, your wallet? Is it, you know, a single password? Is it face ID? ID? Um, is it your thumbprint, right? Um, so all that can be balanced out. And, you know, in terms of adoption, um, where do we, what is the lowest common de denominator? Does everyone need to have a smartphone? Or can we get away with a, with a candy bar, right? A feature phone, right? Um, and that will address different layers of security. So ultimately, it is what is the user experience, uh, what is the use case, uh, what is your reach, right? 
and how much of um, education or computer literacy that you need to have before you can use wallets and CBDCs. I think as soon as you get that, that, that balance, you know, coming to around security and customer experience and privacy, um, and then you can go to market, uh, you know, looking at, you know, uh, how much you can get of adoption and... Um, Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm afraid I can't let you guys go off yet. <laughs> Due to popular demand, we have one more question. Okay, but I think this is probably the last one already. So, um, the audience wants to know, can the digital currency be a solution to economic crisis for countries that are suffering from economic mismanagement by governments? And I think from, from that point of view, they are alluding to also corruption. Example, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, etc. Or is, is that of the luxury that is only confined to developed countries and economies only? So I think in terms of, um, you know, like, like I mentioned about, you know, as soon as you digitize, uh, you leave, you know, digital footprints and, you know, your, your privacy is sacrificed, your, uh, your anonymity to a certain level disappears, right? Uh, coming back to, you know, me giving you, Grace Lynn, you know, $10 for Prata, nobody knows except you and me. So I think, you know, uh, in terms of corruption um, and, and other kinds of, uh, you know, financial crimes, right, whether it's, you know, you know, trafficking or drugs or weapons, suddenly all that, you know, from underground becomes above ground. Uh, and that, that becomes transparent and, and you can see that. So, so you, you're, you're correct, right? So it, you can weed out to a certain extent uh, corruption, um, but, you know, uh, criminals are always, you know, two steps ahead of you. So as soon as you have new um, business processes or technology or, or mechanisms uh, to fight corruption, they will always, you know, uh, be innovative and, you know, and create something that, that can circumvent you. But of course, you know, it'll make their, their lives a, a little bit more difficult uh, and for them to be a bit more creative. Just to add to that, right, you mentioned about Venezuela. Venezuela actually have a cryptocurrency called Petrodollar, but nobody uses it. Um, because first of all, uh, it's by design flawed and weak from a cybersecurity perspective. The second thing is not backed by, um, obviously, you know, it's backed by a, 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 you know, a country that has very weak financials. So, so Petrodollar, which is an attempt, but at, at the same time, it's, it's not really taken off uh, at all. It's not backed by any hard assets. And uh, like I said, if you look at digital currency, the concern most country had was if you have a dollarized economy in a lot of parts of Asia and Africa and Middle East, you may run a problem because having a digital currency developed by a, a large uh, economy like the US or, or Japan or, or China, where people are start using that in, in their wallet, then there is a concern that that would mean that uh, there will be less usage or demand for the local currency, and that would impact the local currency. It sort of causes sort of a, a run in terms of away from, from, from local currency. So there is a bit of concern about allowing that to be used uh, without proper control, because then the central banks in those uh, emerging market economy will lose monetary control over the economy, because from that perspective, it's a dollarized economy. So we look at parts of Asia. That's already happening. If a number of you who have been to Myanmar uh, to do with Vietnam, to do with Cambodia, even the locals want to hold dollars. They don't want to hold their local currency. So the, I think the issue here is, is very real. Um, you know, there are a lot of central banks for good reason, one way or another, obviously very cautious about allowing this to happen. 
without without addressing the unintended consequences. So the, the bottom line is, no matter whether we are talking about fiat currencies or uh, digital currencies, the fundamental basis of the issuer um, will still be very important. So a country without good financials will still not have faith um, in its own digital currencies, no matter what form it takes. Um, so, so to wrap up for tonight, um, any parting words from our panelists to the audience um, before we call it a night? Just, just uh, two to three liners. So we are in the, this is the holy grail, right, of, uh, of payments, of uh, digital payments. So the vision, the exchange is uh, what we call IFS, that payments are, are to be instant, uh, free, and safe. And I think that future is, is quite close. Higgin, you want to go ahead before I end? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I find it very interesting, actually, to hear from the likes of uh, John and Joe, who uh, you know work in the financial sector, and uh, you know who will inevitably play their role in the introduction of uh, a CBDC at some point in the future. It's only a matter of, uh, of time. Um, and what we've seen so far really has been a, very, a bottom down uh, or a top up, uh, sorry, top down rather approach, top down, uh, where the central banks have been issuing various publications and statements on how they envisage a, a CBDC. But what I'm very much looking forward to is uh, greater dialogue across the industry with um, banks and payment services firms, but also consumers and you know, users of, of a potential CBDC to see you know, what they think of the concept, because we've heard very little from the grassroots level. Um, it's all uh, still a, a very much a macro topic so hopefully we'll, we'll get there in, in the coming months. Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, some of the things are recovered, but if I will give a takeaway for people in the audience, as we heard a lot on the pros and cons, but the key thing is that uh, with COVID and with the people are, are gonna change their way of working, way of doing business, financial technology uh, in the context of payments is only gonna grow. They'll give us more options. What will also happen is the financial technology will spur financial inclusion by facilitating payments to different modes as we discussed for the last more than an hour. So why we see that, you know, if there's anything that silver lining can come up from this current crisis is that it actually create an environment for not just the public, private sector, but also private sector to collaborate, to actually leverage on technology uh, in terms of making payment a more seamless and hopefully in future a frictionless process. Well, thank you, um, panel. Very insightful session. Very robust right. discussion. Uh, I think I thoroughly. I think this is one of the most enjoyable sessions I've moderated before. And uh, I think just to end for the night, uh, one of the audience say thanks to the panel of speakers for such an insightful session that's moderated professionally and well-organized, well done. So this audience enjoyed very well, very much, and I hope the rest of the EU as well. So thank you everyone for coming tonight, and uh, please uh, keep well and stay safe, and I'll pass it over to Sophia now. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you panelists, um, Grace Lynn, Hagen, Joe, John, for such a wonderful uh, webinar session. This is our first, but yet this is uh, one of the best ones that we've uh, We've gone through so to thank you uh, participants as well for taking time to uh, join us at this webinar so i'm sure you will bring back new information um, to your work as well as uh, i
knowledge uh, individual. So um, if you have any questions or further questions for all to be connected to the panelists, I will meet up to them as well. So um, good evening everyone. I look forward to seeing you at our future events. So um, stay safe and keep well. Thank you very much everybody. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>